on the liquidity side, that's really a key consideration and just how much is an insurance company willing to allocate to illiquid assets. I think in the past, that has been kind of an arbitrary allocation or just what feels right. Insurance companies do a lot of modeling on the liability side to know how much of their liabilities are sticky and how much could walk away, but maybe they haven't really pushed up their illiquidity limit. And now I think they're looking more at doing that because of the search for yield as well as the need to diversify. That was Anne Bryant, head of insurance solutions at Barings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Barings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 16 of season two of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So on today's show, I spoke with Ann Bryant, head of Bearings Insurance Solutions Group, and Eric Lloyd, head of private investments for Bearings. This is the last episode of the season, but the first episode of our new investor series. And this one, as you can probably tell from the guests, focuses on private investments from an insurance company's perspective. In the conversation, we spoke about the unique challenges that insurers face from regulatory requirements to various accounting standards, and how private assets can form part of the solution for tackling these. We talked about the relative attraction of various private asset classes from real estate debt to private placements to infrastructure debt to middle market direct lending, and also how managers like Bearings are conducting due diligence in these asset classes in the midst of this global pandemic. And finally, we discussed the nuances of putting it all together, thinking about how to construct a strategic allocation to private assets, and then how to capitalize on tactical opportunities as they arise. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Anne Bryant and Eric Lloyd. Okay, Anne Bryant and Eric Lloyd, welcome to Streaming Income. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great. I'm excited to have both of you here today. Excited to talk about private assets from the perspective of insurance investors. This is a new investor series that we're starting out today. So I'll be very interested to hear from our listeners in terms of some of their feedback on this. But let's get right into it. You know, before we start the conversation about private assets from an insurer's perspective, I'd like to just get just a quick bit of background information from each of you, if you don't mind. So and it'd be great to hear if you wouldn't mind just describing your current role at, at Bearings and also maybe what you've done professionally before you joined Bearings. Okay, sure. Yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll start with the background. Uh, by background, I, I'm an actuary. I've worked uh, for direct writing insurance companies, uh, both on the product and pricing side. And then I've also worked within the investment department. I also worked for quite a long time uh, for consulting firms as a pension actuary, and then at investment consulting firm as well. Here at Bearings, I'm head of insurance solutions, and solutions at Bearings is a a partnership. It's meant to be a partnership with insurance companies, figuring out the best investments for them that meet all of the constraints and requirements 
that they need. Yeah, and and I want to talk about those constraints and requirements as well. But that that's interesting that you've almost been on all sides of the table when it comes to insurance investing. Eric, how about you? Would you mind uh, describing your current role and maybe what you've done professionally before this? Absolutely. And as the listeners will figure out really quickly, Anne is the insurance expert here. So I'll be, I'll be doing the color commentary through this as opposed to the, the, the key technical things. I'm the global head of private investments at Barron's. So that really means everything that is an illiquid investment. So that would range from real estate debt to corporate debt that is illiquid infrastructure, and various other asset classes. Prior to joining Bearings, I spent over 20 years in various roles in investment banking and risk management, and I've been at Bearings for about seven years. Thanks, Eric. And little known fact for our listeners is that Eric was actually the first guest ever on Streaming Income. So apparently he was the only one trusting enough to allow me to put a microphone in front of him. So thank you for that, Eric. Here we are almost 40 episodes later, but I appreciate your your willingness to take a chance on this show at the beginning. Absolutely. All right. And so let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges that insurers face. And I just want to kind of level set here, especially if we have listeners who are not insurance investors themselves listening in on this podcast. Tell us what some of these constraints or requirements that insurance investors have to solve for that maybe other investors don't. Okay, sure. Yeah, so I'll keep this at a high level, at least initially, before we dive into any technical details. Insurance companies in particular are constrained by numerous regulations, and those vary by geographic region, by insurance company type. They're very detailed. They even require reporting securities at the individual QCIP level. There's also a lot of pressure right now on the rate and yield side, just given how low rates are. So to maintain competitiveness on the insurance side, insurance companies need to select assets that will make their pricing appealing to consumers. So that tension between meeting all the regulatory constraints and then also hitting their yield requirements is one of the most significant challenges. Yeah. And then, Eric, you and your teams have been managing assets on behalf of insurance investors for for decades. What are some of these challenges that you're hearing from them right now? Yeah, I think Ann hit on probably the first one we hear, is, which is the low rates that exist in the market and the challenges that, that creates for insurance companies to generate the appropriate level of income and particularly current income that they need for their ultimate you know, liability structure that they have or the products that they have, their insurance customers. I'd say a couple other things that are out there today is really the correlation between asset classes You know, as you put together any portfolio construction, whether it be at an individual asset type or for an insurance company at a more macro level, you're really looking for asset classes that move in different directions during different scenarios. And what we always find out in in the challenges of of an environment like we're in today or what we went through in 2008-9 is those correlations shift from historical norms at times into, into where they are today. And so I'd say that 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 correlation has been been another aspect of it. I guess the third one I would hit on would be the illiquidity premium. When you think of private assets, ultimately, given the lack of liquidity that they have, you, the investor is looking for an absolute illiquidity premium. So if they could buy a liquid asset that they could trade easily at a yield of 5%, they're looking for something more like 6% or 7% on the private asset 
so that they're getting compensated for that lack of liquidity or the lack of ability to trade out of that asset if they, if they so want to. And as we've seen this volatility in the liquid markets, there are a period of times where that illiquidity premium was more or less attractive than kind of historical norms. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, Eric. And I think one of the things I'd, I'd like to get into here is talking about the attraction of, of private assets, generally speaking, and mentioned that that insurance investors face a number of you know, regulatory constraints, et cetera. And so I want to talk about why private assets are attractive and how that differs maybe when you look at some of the specific private asset classes. But I'd like to get some context from you, Anne, because you know, you sat on the other side of the table here as an insurance investor. I can imagine it's got to be difficult to almost to stay up to date in terms of all the the options that are out there in terms of private asset classes. So how were, were you able to to do that, to stay current on your knowledge of the asset classes? Is that a big challenge? It is. And, and it's not just staying up to date, but it's really understanding what the private asset manager, what they are actually investing in. Like at the end of the day, what does the insurance company really own? What are the rights around that? What what can go wrong? And and. I, I think at insurance companies, given the heavy actuarial background and just analytical background, there's a tendency to rely on numbers and models, but, but really understanding from a tangible perspective, what, what is this investment? Um, that, that can be a challenge, especially when looking at a new asset class. And what really comes into play is trust in the asset manager. So, there is a lot of due diligence. There's understanding the asset as, as well as, as possible. But then the, the due diligence and everything that needs to happen with the actual execution of the deals, that, that is with the investment manager. And there has to be a good relationship and, and a lot of trust. I love how Ann used the word trust. When I talk to my team members on the investment side, I tell them that we're ultimately in the trust business, that people give us the responsibility and the opportunity to invest capital on behalf of their constituents, whether that be a pension, an insurance company, a family office, an endowment. But there, there are individuals on the end of each one of those investments that are relying on our performance. And trust is the ultimate responsibility that we have or the ultimate compliment we get when people provide us the opportunity to manage their money. I think how do we move that forward from an investment perspective? There's the execution of the underwriting and the investment philosophy and the like. But on these illiquid assets, sometimes by the time the opportunity exists to make a really attractive investment, you don't have the time to do a manager search and then due diligence on the manager and then set up the account. And then by the time you've done all that work, sometimes the opportunities pass you by. And so when you get that investment management responsibility or, or relationship with an insurance company, that allows you the flexibility to invest in certain asset classes based off their relative attractiveness at a time, that's when we find we can really create alpha generation for the ultimate insurance company. With private assets too, you can access different points in the market potentially with different managers and really learn about the style differences. Again, it's, it's often the case that insurance companies love models and love the numbers and will just use generic assumptions about an asset class. But but especially with private assets, it, it can be so so different depending on what part of the market that the asset manager is investing. 
Now, the market itself is not staying static as well. So how are you staying on top of, you know, things like new asset classes emerging and or, or even uh, innovations that are happening for insurers themselves? Yeah, so, so with, with the coronavirus, uh, time will tell what will really happen on the retail side in terms of product demand. Um, it, it sounds like potentially there could be more life insurance demand, which would be a change. Uh, the types of annuity and savings products will probably change over time also, and, and that will drive the demand for the types of assets that are right to back those liabilities, whether it's long-dated or, or fixed or floating or, or whatever the, the need may be. So there's, there's that aspect of things. And then from the investment side, may, maybe Eric, like what, what are you seeing in terms of innovative new uh, private asset classes? Yeah, you know, I think, as you said, Ann, so well that is the insurance companies provide new products or their, their uh, products change or evolve and innovate, then their portfolio construction needs to fit into what those, those products need. And with that comes a, a different mix of assets from a private perspective. I've used like middle market direct lending as an example. So this would be lending to companies that are worth, let's say, $500 million or less that don't really have access to the traditional liquid capital markets. If you go back 15 or 20 years ago, there were very few insurance companies that were accessing that illiquid asset class or that private asset class versus today. I would say that a large number of insurance companies use that as a means of their portfolio construction on the investment side. I'd say a second one would be something like infrastructure debt. Again, it maybe came under a different term, but if you look at infrastructure debt, which is primarily more investment grade in nature um, and long dated, it really provides an attractive investment for insurance companies that it has a long dated asset that matches a long dated liability. Uh, as well as an investment grade feature, which is attractive from a, a capital perspective. So let's talk about some of these private asset classes, Eric. Your team has a pretty broad uh, reach in terms of the the different asset classes that you all uh, invest in on behalf of clients. So tell me, you know, what you're seeing today in terms of the asset classes that insurers are allocating, you know, more to, and I guess you know why that would be the case. Really engaging. What are we trying to solve for? And in a number of cases for insurance companies, there is a asset liability matching challenge. What they need in many cases is long dated assets. And so things like corporate private placements, I referenced infrastructure debt, core mortgages. So think of a, a office building or something of an industrial building that has a, you know, a, a large tenant base and a great metropolitan city can create a kind of a core mortgage. Those create long dated assets that are typically investment grade that offset the long dated liability. So I'd say that's kind of a core investment type of a- asset that we see insurance companies be attracted to. And then on the sides, there's things you bring in to complement those. We could do private asset-backed securities as an example. I've referenced middle market lending, which is typically non-investment grade. So there's various other assets you can bring in to kind of complement the kind of core part of the portfolio, which is typically investment grade, and it's typically longer dated assets. Yeah. So if you're trying to solve for long dated liabilities, for instance, and you're operating within 
you know, various regulatory schemes around the world. And of some of the asset classes that Eric just mentioned, whether you're talking about corporate private placements or infrastructure debt or, you know, core mortgage real estate debt, you know, from an insurer's perspective, what are some of the pros and cons of those? So I'm thinking specifically about risk-based capital charges and how do some of these asset classes kind of stack up for, for, for an insurer? Because it's not obviously just about absolute returns. No, you're, you're right. The credit quality of the underlying asset is what is important. And, and it really varies by the, the different asset classes that, that we've talked about. So taking commercial mortgage loans, real estate debt, for example, that is a, a particularly appealing type of investment for insurance companies because of the more long dated nature, but also because it is secured by a real building. So that's not a risky asset. And the NAIC recognizes that the regulatory body in the U.S. recognizes that, as do other regulatory bodies in in other parts of the world. So those tend to get very favorable capital treatment. Residential loans also get favorable capital treatment. And then other asset classes sometimes require an external rating from a rating agency to get that favorable capital treatment. So so it, it does vary. And I know that, that the regulatory environment is also kind of a moving target as well. So is there anything you're keeping an eye on in terms of potential changes from the NAIC or, or anyone else that's coming down the pipe that could impact some of these asset classes and how they're treated? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and so, um, as Eric said, the relative value does depend on, on the capital. And, and although the regulatory treatment is a moving target, it's a very slowly moving target. Um, insurance is regulated in the United States by the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. So all of the states get together and, and pass the rules. And, and you can imagine how that could move fairly glacially. But they do keep an eye on on exposures within the insurance industry. They they put forth opinions about various asset classes, favorable or, or not. They're very favorable on commercial mortgage loans, favorable on investment grade CLOs, um, which has been a growing asset class also. But on certain types of CLOs, which are termed combo notes, they're looking at those because they they think that in some cases, perhaps the rating that's been given from an external rating agency is not representative of the true risk. So they do take a, take a deep dive. And then, too, they're looking more granularly at the ratings themselves. The NEIC has six rating categories, generally speaking, and they're looking at breaking that up in, into more based on each notch. So rather than counting triple B all as one thing. It, it will be triple B plus, triple B, and triple B minus. And they've talked about that for a number of years also. So, you know, at some point that will probably be implemented. It's, uh, But it is a challenge not just to keep up with those rules, but then all of the accounting rules. And for companies that have legal entities in, in more than one state or even globally, then there's a whole crossword puzzle of, of regulations to, to navigate. Now you can see why I started off by saying Ann is the expert and I'm the color commentary here, right? <laughs> and that's why when we take you know investment capabilities and marry them with the real expertise that Ann has on the insurance side, is as she started off saying insurance solutions, it gives us the opportunity at Bearings to provide a solution for that client for whatever particular portfolio challenge they're trying to solve for. That makes a lot of sense. And, and it really is just a lot to wrap your head around when you start thinking about all the different 
regulatory regimes uh, around the world, all the different accounting treatments. Uh, it's a real science, in my novice opinion. It's a real science uh, when it comes to you know trying to triangulate into what investments, what asset classes make sense for which different investors. So a lot of respect to you and your team, Anne, for navigating um, all that every day. Eric, I, I wanted to just follow up with you t- on something that you know is maybe a little more current to today. Obviously, we are all you know living in this new world that's been shaped by the the global pandemic. You know, we're we're doing this call today remotely, uh, whereas maybe in prior times we've been sitting across the table from one another. But maybe just talk to me a little bit about as your teams across various private asset classes, whether you're talking about something like real estate debt or uh, infrastructure debt or private placements or middle market lending, as your teams kind of are out there looking at investment opportunities, trying to source attractive investments, can you just describe what that environment is looking like today? Um, Because I think there's a lot of curiosity in terms of how you and your teams could actually, you know, go and kick the tires on assets, do due diligence, all that sort of thing. So can you just give us a little sense on that? Absolutely. And, you know, it's really not one standard answer um, because different asset classes are being impacted materially differently. And then within that asset class, it's, it's very different. So let's use real estate debt, the broad term that we talk about. We talk about core mortgages or mortgages against properties. Well, as you sit here today, if you have a mortgage on a office building in Manhattan, let's say it's a 40-story office building in Manhattan, then you have a mortgage on a three-story office building that's in more of a suburb, they're having two very different impacts potentially based off of the scenario that we're all living through. Let's think about hotels, right? Um, you think about where hotels are, whether they're you know more luxury or leisurely, whether they're, that hotel is you know somewhere that's maybe a more urban environment. Then you think about industrials, right? Where you might have a mortgage on an industrial property. You know, an Amazon warehouse is, you know, obviously working very hard right now. And so they have, even within real estate debt and even within kind of a first lien or a secured mortgage, they have really different impacts across those. Um, so we have to take all that into account. What I'd say is, you know, it's really thinking about each of those asset classes and what's the short-term impact of what we're going through, you know, as a society today. And then what is the potential long-term impact? And each jurisdiction can be a little different. As I said, each asset class can be a little different. There are attractive places to invest right now. And we're able to do due diligence just as we're doing this call remote. We're able to do remote due diligence. Ultimately, you want to make sure you can see an asset. And so you do have conversations and you know Zoom calls where you have people walking through plants and the like and using your video to, to show you what that plan or that building looks like. And, you know, we might say to the person with the phone, okay, now turn left and, you know, put your phone, you know, 45 degrees up so we can just see where things are and make sure it's not, you know, corded or something like that. And so there's definitely ways to do it. I think it's, it is a time though, where, you know, discipline is really important. And so as, as we go through the investment, you know, Today, at all times, you want to stay disciplined on your investments. But you see here today, there's more unknowns than there were before. And so kind of making sure you stay really disciplined is really important. And some of the asset classes that Eric just referenced, obviously, all have their own very unique attributes. They have exposures to a variety of, of economic factors and other factors. So can you just talk to us a little bit about the process of 
combining these into a portfolio that actually makes sense and is set up to help an insurer achieve the goals, given all the constraints that you mentioned. Can you just give us a little bit the sort of insight into how that all comes together? Yeah, a lot of this is shaped by regulation and capital considerations as well as account outcomes. But also from an asset liability perspective, insurance companies do a lot of work to model their liabilities and to figure out what their cash flow requirements will look like. So they they usually have an idea of of their outer risk limits and, and what they're willing to consider. And then depending on how large they are and what their uh, considerations are, looking at a a model for a strategic asset allocation is is one way to to at least consider the various attributes and look historically at at what has happened, project what might happen in the future and and optimize to a particular outcome. Um, I think, you know, as we talked about uh, on the liquidity side, that's really a key consideration and, and just how much is an insurance company willing to allocate to illiquid assets? I think in the past, that has been kind of an arbitrary allocation or, or just, you know, what feels right. Um, and like I said, insurance companies do a lot of modeling on the liability side to know h- how much of their liabilities are sticky and how much could walk away. But maybe they haven't really pushed up their illiquidity limit. And now I think they're looking more at doing that because of the the search for yield, and as well as the need to diversify. So, so a model is one way to put all of this together, an asset allocation model. It's, the model isn't perfect, and I, I think that outcomes are, are more directional than anything, but can, but can help set a strategic asset allocation. And, and also, as Eric said, maybe point to assets and asset classes to get on the platform, even if tactically now is not the right moment. Um, just getting working through the the logistics operationally and on the legal side and getting an IMA in place so that when that tactical opportunity comes up can act on that and just understanding how those asset classes do fit in from a diversification and, and volatility perspective over time. Yeah, and that's why that communication is so critical, right? It's really understanding is that insurance companies modeling their portfolio what is it that they're looking for your particular investment agreement that you have with them to what role does it play in that model portfolio? So you understand that, so you make sure that you have the discipline to make sure that your assets uh, that you invest in are consistent with the role that, that they're supposed to fill within that overall portfolio construction. You know, Eric, um, and talked about strategic uh, uh, asset allocation, building a model is, is one potential way to approach the problem. You know, what about tactically? Can you just talk about what you and your teams are seeing out there today, real time? And again, fully understand the caveats that, you know, maybe it, it takes time to, to build up the right exposure and private assets, et cetera. But as you survey that landscape today, what are you seeing as a, as a particular opportunity? And maybe conversely, is, are there parts of that um, universe of private assets that you think look less attractive at this point? So I'd start off by saying one universal comment that I think is applicable to, to most asset classes, both public and private, which is through this COVID environment we're in and the pandemic across the world, really, there are some companies or assets that are materially affected and there are other ones that are not really affected at all from a performance perspective. In some cases, 
you know, it's actually a positive for their business. Um, and so there's very unique circumstances out there today. I'd say for companies that are less affected or marginally affected by COVID or to extent positively affected. So think about air filtration business as an example. Um, you know, those businesses are, are typically that the investments are pretty consistent with what they were from a return perspective prior to the pandemic. So if you roll back four, six, or 12 months, there's, you know, maybe some marginal increase in return on those companies, but in most cases, very limited. So the real question then is what opportunities exist in the companies or the you know, assets that are more impacted by the pandemic? I referenced hotels earlier, right? So, you know, currently, you know, a lot of hotels are in very low utilization or occupancy. You know, that's not going to last forever. And so what, what opportunities exist there that you could invest in, purchase a mortgage from somebody, another provider, um, provide a refinancing to a hotel that maybe would be attractive based off of its location um, and, and your own views on that. Now, what you don't know is whether that's going to be a hotel where people will be going back there in the next three months, six months, 12 months, two years, depending on vaccines and other factors. And so ties it all the way back to the underwriting, which is, you know, these illiquid assets, once you, once you invest in them, you really own them. You own them through the resolution of that asset. And so really managing and, and, and underwriting your downside cases is really critical because, you know, all we know is we just don't know what it was exactly going to look like. And so we really have to underwrite for a very downside scenario. But ultimately, right, in some of these cases, these companies, these assets, they will return back to some level of pre-COVID uh, kind of performance. And in that creates an opportunity as long as you can be patient. Eric, you talked a, a little bit earlier about, you know, how the teams are still being able to conduct due diligence, albeit virtually in many cases, as you look forward, you know, next two, three, four, five years, and you think about um, sourcing investments, um, I'm curious, uh, do you expect that to be challenging? If Ann and team are working with an insurer building up a, a target strategic allocation, and it says, okay, you should have X percent to, you know, real estate debt, X percent to, you know, private placements, infrastructure debt, which are you expecting to be able to source enough investments in, you know, I guess bearings, but also just the market generally, are you expecting those opportunities to, to be there in the years ahead? Yeah. You know, we started off with the word trust as we related to insurance companies and asset managers and that importance of that relationship from a investor, like ultimately they're, they're an investor that we would, we would, you know, invest their money on their behalf. The same trust and relationship exists with sourcing assets whether it be private equity firms that we look to do corporate transactions with, whether it be real estate developers that we look to provide financing for, whether it be sponsors that focus on infrastructure equity and we're the debt provider of that. All of those are also relationships that are built on trust and, and years and years of doing transactions together. And so I think, you know, this will be a time where I think the more scaled pro providers of capital and the people who've been doing this for the longest period of time and have a real breadth of relationships, will be able to source assets at very attractive levels on behalf of their investors. I think it may come at the expense of, of newer participants or you know, people who are more uh, transactional in nature as opposed to more relationship in nature. 
you know, as we went through this challenging situation over the last couple of months, you know, every asset manager is really shown to their investor insurance company, as well as to their obligor company, i.e. the person that borrowed the money, whether it be a real estate developer or a company, you've really done a lot of things during that period of time to kind of show and define that relationship and, and how you've operated. And I think that the people who've done that well, will see a lot of transactions coming on the back end. People are still doing deals, right? They're still, you know, private equity firms buying companies in this period of time. Maybe not at the same pace, certainly it was six months ago, but that will come back. And there's still real estate transactions that are coming uh, to market, not at the same pace as they were six months ago, but that too will come back. Um, and so I think, you know, when exactly that or how the pace of that in investment flow happens, I don't know, but I feel confident that over the next couple of years, we'll be able to invest at attractive levels on behalf of our clients. That's encouraging to hear. All right. Well, as we wrap this conversation up, I wanted to just give you both the chance to maybe leave us with a couple of final takeaways. So, and maybe we'll start with you as you, you know, think, especially from an insurance investor's standpoint, and they're thinking about navigating the next 12, 24, 48 months, whatever it is, um, anything you would leave them with today? You know, some things we've already talked about, like uh, just taking a, a closer look at the illiquidity limits and, and really what what room is there to expand into uh, more illiquid asset classes. Um also, an opportunity to, to look at new asset classes. I, I think as this unfolds, we'll see how the private asset classes will really perform. And I, I think it will tell a good story. So, um, so understanding how a crisis affects those asset classes and, and then the opportunity to add those. And then I, I would say also just um, to continue really understanding the practical side of things. So there is the theoretical side and what the numbers tell us and historically what has happened, but then there is really the practical side as well. And this is just another example of that. Like Eric, maybe you could talk a little bit about how important it is to be able to work out situations with borrowers or, or on a deal um, and, and how nuanced that is. It doesn't just fit neatly into a model. It's really such a practical aspect of, of private asset investing. I totally agree with you, Anne. We spend a lot of time talking about illiquidity, illiquidity premiums on the front end of investment, but the real job is about capital preservation. It's about not losing money, right? And, and protecting your, your, your capital on behalf of your client. And as Anne referenced, it is very nuanced. And, you know, think of an of a illiquid asset where you maybe are 100% of the debt provider of a hotel or you're 100% of the debt providing to a company that's got $20 million of earnings and they've been materially impacted by COVID out there. Having the, the skills and the expertise, the capital base, the patience, the competencies from a legal perspective to look at all aspects of the way that you can look to preserve your capital on behalf of your client while also supporting the company or the real estate uh, asset, whichever it might be, on behalf of that obligor and the balance of those is, is, is critically important. And it really is that way you manage the downside risk that I really believe will differentiate managers as we go through this cycle or really any economic cycle. So a few things I take away from this conversation. One is uh, probably a newfound respect for all the nuance that Ann and team uh, are tackling every day with regards to the regulatory constraints, 
accounting treatments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the others would be, you know, a couple of words that I heard uh, from the two of you. One is uh, what Eric just talked about, capital preservation and the importance of that. Uh, the other was uh, communication, which uh, seems to be quite critical, uh, that relationship between manager uh, and client. And the final one would be trust, which is which when I look at the transcript of this conversation, I have a feeling that word may be one of the most common that comes up. So that's come through for me as as being critical. So um, I want to thank both of you for this conversation. You know, this is a new thing for us uh, doing this investor series and focusing specifically um, on a on a channel like insurance. So I'd love to hear feedback from our listeners. Um, you know, we're very fortunate to have. Anne and team here at Bearings, you know, providing this overlay uh, from an insurance investor's perspective. And I think what you'll see from us in the months and years ahead is more content, whether it's podcasts like this or, or written content, et cetera, that is, that is really focused on trying to help insurance investors and other, um, and other investors solve the challenges that they face every day. So uh, it's been great. Anne, thank you so much, Eric. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you joining me. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode 16 of season two of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.